If you have your Bibles today or your device, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of 1 Timothy. If you've been around a while, you know we are going through a series of messages called In Accord. We are studying Paul's letter written to his son in the faith, Timothy, as he served the church at Ephesus. And in this letter, Paul is focusing on what happens in a life, any life, where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, comes to be in accord with godliness in a person's life, the transformational changes that happens there. Today in 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks about the importance of training. You don't become a godly person by osmosis. People aren't just normally bent towards this. This is something we have to work at, something we train at, and the benefits are eternal. This is the way Paul described it to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and, and, and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That's why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray together. Father, this is a powerful word and a great encouragement, because this is an offer made to everyone who will pursue it, training for godliness. I'm praying today, God, that as we open this word, you will encourage our hearts You'll help us to be mindful of whether or not we are training and being equipped and prepared not only to bring glory to your name, but also to have protection in this age of great deception. And we'll thank you, God, for what you'll show us in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading a piece from a book by Jim Collins and Morton Hansen called Great by Choice. And in this book, they were telling how in 1911, Roald Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer, was the first to make it all the way to the South Pole on the Antarctic continent. 
Roald Amundsen was known for his intensive training. For example, knowing that he had to travel from Europe to Antarctica on a ship, he decided he was going to go to Spain and be trained by some of the great seafarers there. So how was he going to get from Norway down to Spain? He ended up riding a bike the entire distance to get in shape. It was 1899. He then began to realize that if he were stranded or shipwrecked on this voyage, maybe the only thing he'd have to eat would be dolphin meat, and he wouldn't be able to cook it. So he began a regimen of training himself to eat raw dolphin meat, to be able to prepare himself for the eventual possibility of needing to eat raw meat. And then, as part of his training, it said, he went off and trained his body and got more experience in living in actual conditions in which he'd be living. So he made a pilgrimage to apprentice with Eskimos. What better way, he said, to learn what worked in polar conditions than to spend time with people who have hundreds of years of accumulated experience in ice and cold and snow and wind. And he, he learned how the Eskimos used their sled dogs to pull heavy weights he learned how they move slowly so as not to create perspiration that could freeze and kill you. How they dressed in a certain way to allow perspiration to ex escape and maintain body heat. He also learned how they survived in extreme conditions. Amundsen's philosophy was, you don't wait until you're in unexpected storms to discover that you need more strength and endurance. You don't wait until you're shipwrecked to determine if you can eat raw dolphin meat. You don't wait until you're in the Antarctic journey to become a superb skier and dog handler. You don't wait till you've lost all shelter to know whether or not you can survive. You train with intensity all the time so that when conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. And equally, you train so that when conditions turn in your favor, you can strike hard. People, the truth is, no real measure of achievement or success can be gained or kept without practice and training, no matter what your pursuit. Ernest Hemingway, the great literary artist, came, his greatness came from spending hours, hours polishing a single sentence or trying to find exactly the right word. Leonardo da Vinci, who amazed the world with his paintings and sculptures of the human form, would spend a thousand drawings of one hand to get it right. Thomas Edison invented, among other things, the incandescent light, only after he had over a thousand failed attempts at trying to produce it. Joseph Heifetz, who's considered to be one of the greatest violinists, if not the greatest of all time, when asked about his greatness, said it was simple. He practiced and trained four hours a day from the time he was three until his death at the age of 76. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when it comes to godliness. Paul told Timothy, train yourself to be godly. He said in verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. 
For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Train yourself. I love that word. It's the word from where we get our English word, gymnasium. It literally means exercise naked. And what it means is throw off everything like they did in the first century before they had spandex suits. Throw off everything that hinders. They would run naked in these races to perform without hindrance. And what Paul's telling him is, using that word, when it comes to training for godliness, you strip off everything that's standing in the way of your training for godliness. To be godly doesn't mean that we are gods. To be godly means that we are becoming more and more like God in character, in conduct, in speech, in our thinking, in our priorities. His life is more and more manifest in us. And Paul said this training will become increasingly important in light of the powerful deceptions that are coming. He said in verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. We are living in those days. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. There are some, he said, that are going to abandon the faith and teach deceiving things by demonic spirits. In Paul's day, it was the legalists or the antinomians, the Judaizers and the Gnostics, and so many other distorted views of the gospel. In these latter days, it's the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Unitarians, a host of other cults, philosophies, and prosperity teachings that are not coming out of the word. They teach a false Jesus. And Paul said these people have abandoned the faith and followed deceiving spirits. They've departed from it. They've forsaken it. The word is they've apostatized meaning they willingly chose to abandon Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And what they're following is deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That phrase, deceiving spirits, is the word for seduction. They are demonic spirits that are teaching and seeking to seduce you into leaving the true Jesus and following a lie. Do you have any idea how many Christians aren't even aware this is happening every day? That there are demonic spirits that are actually seeking slowly to seduce you away from Jesus. And their greatest advantage is people who don't believe they're doing it. This false teaching that they use comes through hypocritical liars. To be a hypocrite means to speak from behind a mask. You're playing a role and you know it. Hypocritical liars, the phrase is intentional liars. They hide behind a mask of representing truth, but they know they are lying in order to deceive you. Their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. When you cook a piece of meat on a hot grill, you throw it on there for a minute and it burns one side. You flip it over, it burns the other side. They call that, it sears it. 
The word is literally they carterize it. They cauterize it. A crusty barrier has been formed over their conscience. They no longer sense any wrong and are unfeeling in regards to their willful deceptions. And they seek to control people by advocating advocating a kind of asceticism as a means to holiness. So in other words, they were teaching all matter is evil and spirit is good. So therefore, physical pleasures are sinful. Therefore, you cannot be in a marriage or you cannot eat certain foods. That if you abstain from these things, that's the key to being holy. And people, this is different than limiting some of your freedoms for the cause of the gospel and a witness. We are free as Christians, as you can see, to eat what we want to eat and drink what you want to drink. But there are certain times, the Bible says, we choose to limit our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you just one example. I don't drink alcohol. I have the freedom to do it, but I don't do it. And the reason I don't do it is it gives me the greatest freedom to minister to the greatest number of people, regardless of their view of those things. So I can sit down and be in a room full of people of recovering alcoholics, and I can share Christ with them about how you don't need alcohol to have a fulfilled life. Or I can be over talking to high school kids who are being saturated with worldly views, and I can tell them, you guys don't need to go the way of the world. You don't need to have that stuff to have fun. I'm telling you, my life is more meaningful, and I can minister to anybody because I'm not engaged in this stuff. I don't have anything standing in the way. I have the freedom to do it. I choose not to do it for the sake of the gospel. That's different. That's different than these people who are trying to say, if you don't do these things, you cannot be holy. And so they were telling him, if you're getting married, that's pleasurable. That's not the key to holiness. You can't get married. Or you like that food you're eating? No, you can't eat that. Sounds like my doctor. You know, if, you, if it tastes good, spit it out. That's what he tells me. Because <laughs> if it's good for you, it won't taste good, apparently. People, the, the key was, what Paul was saying was, this demonic teaching is a farce because you cannot produce godliness on the inside simply by abstaining from something on the outside. So Paul said in verse 4, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. And by the way, did you know that's one of the reasons we say grace at the table? We are consecrating the food that God's provided as good as a gift from God, and we're thanking him for it. So Paul told Timothy, there are all sorts of false deceptive teachers and all sorts of false deceptive doctrines offering a form of godliness but denying its power. So you need to train yourself in the things that really matter. You need to train yourself to recognize those things. You need to train yourself to be godly. Because the gospel and godliness are in accord in the person who is training for godliness. How do you train yourself to be godly? Well, there's a lot of ways, a lot of aspects to it, but two very important ones I want us to look at today that Paul gave to Timothy. First, you've got to stay nourished in the truths of the faith and good teaching. And you've got to keep your hope in the living God and be diligent. Training in godliness requires that we stay nourished in the truths of the faith and good teaching. 
Paul said in verse six, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. A few years ago, we took our kids and some kids from church, and we went to a summer camp in Northern California. We were checking it out for a week to see if it was a place where we could take kids for the future. While we were there at the camp, the U.S. Olympic bike team, bike racing team, was also staying at the camp and training in the hills around Mount Shasta. When it came to dinner time, we all ate together. So here I am sitting at this table with all these high school kids, and here's the U.S. Olympic bike team training right over here. And they brought their meal out first, and I said, man, I wonder what they get at the camp. Well, here's what they brought out. Pork chops, mashed potatoes, green beans, salad, bread, all the fixings. And I'm thinking, this is my kind of camp. So they served all of them, and then when they brought ours out, it was a plate that looked like leftover chopped suey. And I said to the guy, the bike guy next to me, hey, what gives here? You guys get a five-star meal, and we're getting this bowl of this. I'm not sure exactly what it is. And he said, well, our meal is determined by our coaches because we have to have the right nutrition to be able to train at our peak. So our meals are determined for us and we eat the right balance of all these things. Nutrition's part of our training, he said. You know it's no different for those who are training to be godly? Paul told Timothy, spiritual nourishment is part of your training. Verse six, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. The word nourished is the word trained on. It's the idea as part of your training, you must be nourished or trained in the truths of the faith and good teaching. The word truths is the word for the word or the words of God that build faith. Remember Paul told the Romans in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. This is why the NIV uses the word nourishment, the ES word uses the word trained in because it's the idea of nourishment is part of your training. And you must also have good teaching intrinsically good. It's good teaching because it's coming from God and it accomplishes God's intended end of producing godliness. And he said, you gotta follow the good teaching that you have followed. You gotta be nourished in the good teaching you have followed. He used the word for followed closely. You've stuck close to this. You haven't wandered from it. Otherwise, you won't be following truth. You'll be following the things that have nothing to do with truth. You'll be following godless myths. Doctrines and stories that people have made up that are lies that have no relationship or affinity with God whatsoever. 
Godless myths. There are many Christians living by godless myths today all the time. People come to me and they tell me, well, this is what I think about God, or God said this, or this is how God wants us to live or work, or all these things, and I think, where in the world did you get that? Where did you get that? That is not the God of the Bible. God never said what you just said. That is not what he's asking you to do, and that's not how he works. So where did you get that? They're following godless myths that people make up. Or he said you're following old wives' tales. Fables is the word. Fiction that people tell is truth, but it has no basis in fact. So rather than train yourself to be godly, train yourself, rather, train yourself to be godly in the truth and good teaching. Many, many Christians are not doing this. And so one of the questions is, how prepared are we to recognize the lies that are becoming increasingly subtle? It says in the Bible that in the end times, many believers will be led astray. And people say, how in the world can that happen? I said, easy. They haven't, they haven't trained themselves to recognize the truth. Are you, are you training yourself in the nourishment of the word and good teaching to the point that you could recognize an error if it's a hair off? Because that's all it takes to lead people astray. I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, Paul maybe, Barnabas, but whoever wrote it knew what they were talking about. Hebrews 5 verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. People, even Jesus had to be nourished in the word and his humanity to stand against the devil's deceptions. Do you remember in Matthew 4 when he was led out into the wilderness, fasting for 40 days, he was hungry. And he had a full-on frontal satanic assault seeking to get him to act independently of God, deceiving him to doing that, and then being disqualified for the cross. And Satan was using scripture twisted to try to deceive the Son of God. And do you remember what Jesus said every time Satan came at him with another deception? Jesus responded, it is written, it is written, it is written. So much so, when Satan came to him and said, Jesus, you hungry? Turn those stones into bread. In fact, it said, it went more like this if you read it in the original. Since you're the son of God, turn those stones into bread. Or even more like this. Since you are the son of God and we both know it, then turn those stones into bread. And Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
He's quoting from Deuteronomy. In those 40 days of fasting, he was nourishing his mind in the word to stand in his humanity against Satan's attack. People, if Paul has to do it that way and Peter has to do it that way and even Jesus relied on the word to stand strong in his humanity, what does that say about you and me? You can't become more like Jesus unless you nourish your soul and spirit with the word of God and good teaching as part of your godly training. Now, people, please don't take this wrong. I don't mean this any other way than what I'm saying it. I'm just being honest. I don't know how a Christian goes a day without reading the word. I don't know how they do it. I don't know why they would do it. We need to be in Bible study every day, nourishing our souls with the word. We need to be becoming so familiar with the truth that we can spot a lie in a heartbeat. This is one of the reasons we teach the word at our church here. Because the more the word of God is taught, the more we become familiar with the truth, the greater protection we're going to have against the lies. Paul said, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This training is for eternity. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And not only to be nourished in the truth and good teaching, but training in godliness requires that we keep our hope in the living God and be diligent. Paul said in verse 10, that's why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Now, the story I'm about to tell you is true. It took place in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm not sure exactly what this guy was thinking, but he was desperate. He needed money and he came up with this plan. So here's what he figured he was gonna do. I'm gonna make a counterfeit bill that's so perfect it'll pass. And I'm going to go to a grocery store and I'm going to give them this thing. I'm going to buy a pittance of stuff and I'm going to get the change back and I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to live on the change. Now, what he decided to do, however, was he realized, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. So I'm going to make this thing count. So believe it or not, he didn't produce a $100 bill or a $1,000 bill or a $10,000 bill. He makes a counterfeit $1 million bill. And he's going to go into a grocery store, buy his groceries, and get the change. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of things flawed with the guy's plan. I don't know where you guys shop, but where I shop, there's nobody got a million dollars of change in their drawer. Nobody. And secondly, he apparently didn't know that the U.S. anymore doesn't print any bills larger than 100. So he walks into the store with his high hopes, it said in this article, high hopes. He's going to have his car paid for. He's going to have his house paid for. He's going to have money to live on. He's going to be set for the rest of his life. He walks in with this high hope, it says, but really believing this is going to work. And he walks in there. He hands the million-dollar girl, a million-dollar bill to this little girl behind the counter, and she says, I can't take this. She calls the manager. He comes out, obviously spots it as a fraud, grabs the million dollar bill. 
Someone calls the police. The guy grabs the uh, ATM machine there or whatever it is on the counter. He starts banging it up and down, smashing it. And then he reaches over and grabs a little gun thing that shoots the prices. And taking the time to do all this, it gave the police time to come and they arrest the guy. Uh, somebody said he ultimately got what he wanted, three meals a day and a roof over his head. But anyway... <laughs> But what struck me when I was reading this stuff is the number of times it said how hopeful the guy was, how he put his hopes in this thing, that he had such high hopes, it said, for his future. But those hopes were never realized because your hopes are only as good as the object of your hope. And if you have your hope in something that's flawed, that hope is going to disappoint. You know what the Bible says? We have a hope that does not disappoint. Because our hope is in the one who never fails, who knows all things, who is all powerful, who never makes a mistake, who never makes a promise he can't keep, and who knows how to use the things in our lives to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Paul said, we put our hope in the living God. To have a hope is to have a favorable, confident expectation of a good outcome. That if I put my hope in this, it's going to turn out okay. Paul said, we put our hope in the living God. This is why we labor and strive. This is why we labor. We work to the point of exhaustion. This is why we strive. We suffer and we keep going. Because we have put our faith and our hope in the living God. So Paul's telling Timothy, our ability to keep working to the point of exhaustion and to keep going in the face of suffering is because we have a hope in the living God and a certainty that with him it'll turn out good. This hope isn't just in any God. It's in the living God, the eternal God, the only God, the one who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Now, as we're learning in 1 Timothy, as elsewhere in the New Testament, when it says he saves all people or he wants all people to be saved, we're learning very clearly that not everybody is saved. It's not saying that. He wants all people to be saved. It literally is he wants all kinds of people from all nations. He is the savior of all people. He's not saying he's going to save everybody. Paul is saying he's the only savior. So if you want to be saved, you got to come to this Jesus because you can't get saved by anybody else. He is the savior of all people. It isn't he's the savior of some. He's the savior of all. There's no other option. And this is especially of those who believe he is the only Savior, and that is especially seen in those who have believed him and have been actually saved. And this hope in the living God makes a difference in how we live. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church in the second letter he wrote to them about his trials and all the things he'd been through and defending his apostleship, listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Verse 7, chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's not us producing this. God's producing it. And look at the difference that makes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. And if you're going to live this life with Jesus in a godly life, you're going to get hard-pressed. The world is not going to just let that happen. Paul said, we're getting hard-pressed on every side. But we're not crushed because we have our hope in the living God. See, now we know that no matter what happens, God's at the helm of this thing. And look at this. We're perplexed but not in despair. We don't always know what God's up to. We don't know why we're going through something exactly sometimes. And we don't know how long it's going to last or what the outcome's going to be. But we know this. When we are perplexed, when we are puzzled, when we don't understand, we're not in despair. Because now we know that God is controlling all of these things for a bigger purpose. So we're not sitting around wringing our hands. We know God's in charge of it, and he's using it for good. Then he said, we're persecuted but not abandoned. Now, please don't take this statement as though I don't have any compassion, because I do, and I go through the ringer sometimes too. But persecution's persecution, and it's no fun on any form, on any level. But I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, I'm going through this thing, and it's been going on so long, and how much more is God going to put on me, and why do I have to do this, and where is God in this? I feel as though he's abandoned me. I heard it this week. And I said, where did, you, where did you hear that God's abandoned you because things are hard? Where, where did you hear that? Well, I didn't hear it. I, I felt it. So you felt abandoned. Yeah. So you're living by feelings rather than truth. Because I can tell you God said he will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. Do you know in persecution when things are going hard and you feel like you're getting crushed? God hasn't abandoned you. In fact, when people yell out, where is God in this? I'll tell you where God is. He's right there in you and with you in this. In fact, the Bible teaches that Jesus' suffering continues for his people through us in those times. There's a perspective you're not going to get in very many places. But that's what God teaches so God hasn't abandoned us, Paul said. We're persecuted but not abandoned. Look at this. We're struck down but not destroyed. Some of us are dying in this effort, but they can't destroy us. They can take our body, but they can't touch us. Wow. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. You see, when you're getting crushed when you're getting, or when you're getting hard-pressed or when you're getting struck down, when you're getting persecuted, when you're perplexed, when all these things are happening and the light of Jesus is shining out of you, people are going to know that's not you. The life of Jesus is shining out of you. And people, that's the definition of godliness that Jesus is displaying his life in you. 
Paul said, this is all part of your training. That's why you have to have your hope in the living God so you won't be confused when this stuff happens. That's why when Paul went on to say, and I've said this every hour, I don't have time to get into this like I want, so you're gonna have to track quickly. Command and teach these things, verse 11. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy, don't let people look down on you just because you're young. Timothy was probably about 30 at this writing. Paul said, this kind of godliness has nothing to do with your age. There are people who have, who have said they're Christians for 30, 40, 50 years, but they're not godly. But I could take you today in our high school group and introduce you to some high school kids who are following Christ with a commitment that would knock your socks off. You wouldn't believe how committed they are. Godliness has nothing to do with chronological age. It has to do, Paul said, with your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, and your purity. Timothy, don't let people look down on you. You show them the godliness that's in you by the way you talk, by the way you live, by the way you love, in the things you believe, and in the purity of your life. Let that show them Christ in you. And then he said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. This is why we read the Bible when Phil and I bring messages. We read the passage to you. Because you never want to be in a place where you're getting your life based on the pastor's opinion. You need to know what God is saying. You need to know what God is saying. And I wouldn't go to a church that doesn't make the scripture central. My daughter Kimmy moved back to Ohio with her husband. They've been looking for a church. So Kimmy was calling me. Dad, we went to this church this week. Man, the guy barely referred to the Bible. We went to a church this week. He didn't even have a Bible on the pulpit. We, we went to a church this week. We barely heard. We heard like three or four verses. And then she called me. She said, Dad, we went to a church today. The pastor got up and publicly read the scriptures before he preached them. And I said, Kimmy, that's probably a church you might want to think about joining. Preach it. In other words, exhort people to obey it. Teach them. Instruct them how to do it. Don't neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy, do you remember when the elders of your church gathered around you and they prophesied, they foretold what God was revealing to them about your life, how you were going to live, how God wanted to use you. And you remember they prayed at that time and God gave you a gift, a spiritual gift. Don't neglect it. God gave that gift to serve him. You know what? Every one of you, every one of us who are Christians, God has given you a gift or gifts, spiritual gifts that God has bestowed upon you when you believed that he wants to use to strengthen the body, his church, and to reach the nations for Christ. He said, don't neglect that thing. Exercise that gift. That's part of your training. Be diligent in these matters. Don't just start this way. You got to do it every day. Be diligent at it. Pay attention. Give yourself wholly to them. No half-hearted efforts here. So that everyone may see your progress. 
Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch what's coming out of your life and watch what's coming out of your teaching and what's coming into your life and into your teaching. Watch it closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Remember, this salvation has a lot of different uses in the New Testament. And again, what he's describing to them is not that you will be saved from your sin if you do this, but you and your hearers who sit under this kind of teaching, who put their faith and hope in the living God, who trained this way, will be saved from a life of ungodliness and falling prey continually to deception. You're gonna save them from that. I spoke at men's retreat a couple of months ago up at Mount Hermon, and I was sharing with the guys there about one of the godliest men I've ever known. His name was Dr. Heath. If you've been around here a while, you've heard me mention him. When I became a Christian, I didn't know anything. Nothing. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about church. I didn't know anything about worship. I didn't know anything. But I believed when I heard that I was a sinner. I believed when they told me Jesus died on a cross for me and was buried and rose again. And if I'd receive him into my life, he would save me. I believed that. So I invited Christ into my life and he came. But I had so many things I had to learn. God put in my life a man named Dr. Heath. He was a very prominent doctor in Seattle. Very well-to-do, very well-known. He lived a very simple, godly life. He and his wife. He uh, had seven kids. He and his wife, seven kids, all of them walking with God. By God's grace, he invited me into his life so I would eat at their house. I'd watch him how he treated his wife and how he treated his kids. They had no television set. Their house was full of books and laughter and games and times together as a family. And uh, he invited me to be on their missions committee for the church. I didn't even know what a missionary was. And he said, I want you to be on our missions committee. So he began to teach me God's heart for the world. And then he would have me in Bible study with him. And he would take me with him sometimes when he was teaching the high school group. He took me to Bible conferences. He took me on vacation with him. And I watched this godly man show me how to live. He died a couple of years ago. His wife Lillian said he was in the hospital bed. They knew he was he was dying physically. His wife was there, all seven of his kids, their spouses, and their multitude of grandkids. How they ever got them all in the room, I'll have no idea. But Lily and his wife said to me, Larry, when Sherb, Dr. Heath, when Sherb passed into God's presence, presence of God was so powerful in that room you could feel him and our family broke into hymns of praise as we worshiped God thanking him for this godly man you know since I met him and watched him 
I wanted so much to be like him. He was a real example that I could follow. The godliest man I knew. And I wanted so much to be like him. And when he died, I thought, Lord, what do I do? And God reminded me, Larry, Dr. Heath was a godly man because he trained to be godly. I put him in your life to be an example. I wanted you to see what a godly man looks like. But I don't want you to be like Dr. Heath. I want you to be like me. And I can tell you there are people I ain't there yet. But I am training. And so are many of you. And this door to this training is open to anybody who's ready to step through it. Nourishing themselves in the truths of the faith and good teaching. Putting our hope in a living God and being diligent to stay at that hope because we know that in the end, it all turns out for good. This is a reliable statement, Paul said. This training benefits both this life and the life to come. And that's why Paul said, train yourself to be godly. Father, thank you for reminding us of this. I don't know what everybody's godliness training program looks like. But without the word of God and without this kind of hope in the living God, it's not going to be much. So God, you help us with this. We can't produce godliness, but you will when we're training ourselves to do it. And may we be faithful, God, to give you the glory when people see you shining in us. When the gospel and godliness come accord in a person's life, you are glorified. And others can see the way to follow too. And we thank you, God, in your precious name. Amen.